Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it. And the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. And as much then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry of somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand this text now. And it's in Christ's good name that we pray. Amen. Um, A few years ago, back, it was December of 2000. I found myself getting ready for deployment. I was heading to the Middle East and we were going to ultimately be staged out of Bahrain. I would spend at least six months there. It could be as extended as much as nine months. Um, we knew that as we were leaving Coronado, we knew that our flight plan would go from Coronado to Dover and Delaware, from Delaware to, to Rota, Spain. We would spend 24 hours there, and then we would basically leave the next day. It was all for the pilot's sleep the next day to, to land in Bahrain, and then we would be operational. It was an interesting time in my life. I was a, a, I was a, a Christian. I kind of had gone long enough in my walk with the Lord that I was beginning to really grow and to be excited and to be plugged in. And and I I knew that, um, I didn't know that I was going into the ministry, but I knew that I wanted to study more of the Bible. And I had set out with my Moody Bible Institute, uh, distant learning Bible college uh, courses. Um, I had met Anna at this point and I was a little bit smitten with her. And uh, a, a guy that likes a girl will do much to win her attention. And so I was going to row to Spain. She grew up there. And so I wanted to impress her. So I said, hey, give me a, a, a list of everything I should see. I'm going to land. It's going to be in the morning. I'm going to have all day to, to, to roam the town and to see things. And so she, uh, her and her brother on this piece of paper, like made a chicken scratch sort of map of row to Spain. And, uh, 
they listed all of the spots that I should go visit. It was a real scavenger's hunt. And so one of the things they said, hey, you're, if you get there on a Wednesday, our old church will be having a, a church service. So, you, so here's the number of, of Brother Larry and call Larry and he will, uh, he'll make arrangements so that you can get to church. I'm like, okay. So we land in Rota, Spain. They open the door and they, like always they say, you know, local time in Rota, Spain, it's Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. But when they opened the door, it was pitch black. I'm like, what time did you guys say it was here? 9 a.m. Well, all of Europe's on the same time zone. And so being so far west, it doesn't get light in Rota certain times of the year to like 10 in the morning. Makes sleeping in way easier. And so I exited the plane. They, they transported us to this resort where we were staying in the SEAL teams. They often put you up in real nice places. It's two extremes, either really nice or really bad. And this was a really nice one, like a resort right on the beach. All of the guys were happy. They were going to go get some rest. And I'm like, well, I got this little map. I got to find my way around Rhoda. I, I went and saw all of the places. I knew that Anna and her friend were going to be coming by their Christmas time, which is in a couple of weeks. So I went and found, or I tried to find Christmas cards. I couldn't find Christmas cards. I wasn't, I didn't know that, I didn't want to make it seem like I liked Anna. So I wrote a Christmas card for each one of the girls that were coming, trying to make it, trying to slightly skew it. So the, you know, trying to stay anonymous. Like I was just trying to be nice to the both of them. But she knew that I was like, hers was special. And uh, so I got that. I'm going around. I find all of the places. And I was exhausted. When I get tired, I get goofy. And then I'm in a third world country just walking the streets and taking pictures to prove to her that I found the places. Well, then the night, as the evening approached, I, I, uh, I get back to the hotel room to call this guy Larry. And I was like nervous. I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I'm about to go to the Middle East for like war. And here I am calling some missionary in Rota, Spain to have him pick me up to go to church. And so I, I like Dana. And so a guy will do crazy things. And so I pick up the phone, dial the number. I hear, Digame. Huh? Uh, did I get the right number? And it's like, oh, hi, how are you doing? It's, I, I'm American. My name's Gunnar Hansen. I know Anna Hilton. She, you know her? And he's like, oh, yeah, we knew you guys were, you were in town. We'd love to take you to church tonight. We'll come pick you up. The nicest people. They came. They picked me up. I went with them. And, I, and at this point in my life, I really, church to me was sort of mega church. And so then we show up to Wednesday night Bible study and the room was tiny. I'm talking like maybe half of this room and shortened. And I think maybe, I don't know, 15 people showed up. And it was just small. And the kids, they have three daughters, right? Four daughters. There were a lot of little girls uh, and and a varying age, super sweet to me, just like came up and were were interacting with me and having so much fun. And he was super talkative. And and then it was basically time for me to send send me home and and to go, I mean, home to back to the motel to where the next day I would go to the Middle East. And I, I left that setting, which sort of was the, uh, the theme of my deployment, I, I left there for the first time encountering missionaries. I, I never even heard of a missionary. To me, if you were a missionary, that meant you were doing black ops for the CIA, making lots of money. And so here's these missionaries. I, I wasn't quite sure what to expect. Uh, maybe the closest thing I had was, uh, for most of you, if you don't know it, don't worry about it. 
But the Simpsons, their neighbor is a Christian. They'd always make fun of him. His name was Ned Flanders. And so I was kind of just expecting just super perfect, jovial people that like were just glowing with the spirit, just happy. And I got there and it was like, man, there was like discouragement, isolation, and tough, tough turf as far as reaching people for Christ. I remember talking to Anna and she said, no, growing up, our neighbor said they would rather have a child molester live next door to them than an evangelical Christian. And I was like, whoa, this is not, I thought going on like, to, to, to go be a missionary, I thought it was like, sort of like going on vacation extended. And, and it wasn't that at all. And I remember leaving there and going to Bahrain and I was growing in my faith. And it was the first time that I was in a platoon where I was the only believer. And I had these little Moody Bible Institute courses. And so I was pretty much, so I don't, I didn't, I didn't do any drinking that trip. I'd kind of mastered the drinking in my life and studied. And I just remember feeling, uh, leaving there with this sort of this, this deployment of God saying, you know what, Gunner, if you're going to serve me, if you're going to walk with me, uh, what I have in store for you, you need to learn uh, to, to basically walk with me in a way that you're being fed and ministered to me because in the ministry, there's isolation. And at that point, I had no idea what God was doing. I was open to staying into the, the, the SEAL teams as a missionary to, to whatever. I just didn't know. And I felt like he's like, you know what? You need to walk with me, not be fed. There's no Bible studies here. There's no other believers to encourage you. You just need to walk with me and be encouraged by me. And it was a tough lesson. Like it was a hard lesson. Like I appreciate Bible studies and being able to go to church. I love it. I remember on that deployment having like three sermon CDs that I would listen to over and over and over again. And one of them had communion on it. I'm in Kuwait, like in this hangar bay going, man, they're taking communion. I want to take communion. So I had orange Gatorade and grape nuts. And I took communion with grape nuts and orange Gatorade. And it was the most intimate communion I think I've ever had. It was beautiful. And like, and, and so the reason I say all of this, you're like, Gunnar, what does this have to do with, as we enter into Romans 11, it's important for us to, to go back to the beginning. I'm not going to make you go back to kind of get the context set. It, 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 Paul's writing to these believers in Rome. They weren't started by any apostle. Paul didn't know them. He didn't start the church there. In Romans 1, 7, Paul writes that he's writing to the beloved of God in Rome. We know in studying our history that the church there was made up of both Jewish believers in Christ and Gentile believers in Christ. As the church started, it was predominantly Jewish believers. As they flourished, they started reaching out to their Jewish non-believers and tensions arose. Now, Claudius was in control during this time, and he got sick of the tension amongst the Jews. So he kicks out all of the Jews from Rome. During that time, the Gentile believers begin to flourish. They grow in number. They begin uh, questioning is maybe all of the promises given to Israel belong to us. It's funny. One guy pointed out this week in my week study. He said, it's funny how the church always likes to claim the promises given to Israel in the Old Testament. But all of the curses that belong to Israel are still Israel's. They don't. they, They only want half of it. And so as this Gentile church is flourishing, eventually Claudius is poisoned. Nero comes to power. Nero allows the Jews to come back to Rome. There's a small segment of Jewish believers. As they come back, they're now the minority. They're wrestling, struggling with what's going on here. 
And if you look at the Jewish people, I, 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 I want us to understand the plight and the feelings that I think Paul is trying to, to reach, that they would be experiencing. But we're so far removed that we forget about what the Jewish people went through. Now, if we look at Jewish history, the first thing is, why is Israel selected? Are they a super special people that were like godlier than other people? Were they more powerful that God was using? To do this, I want us to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. So if you'll turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7, we'll sort of see why Israel. What was God's plan in using this people? When we look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, the first few verses, uh, they're about to enter the promised land. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. Moses knows that he's not going to enter the promised land. He's retelling the law, uh, equipping the next generation that would enter into the promised land. And he writes this or says this. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you're entering to possess it, And clears away many nations before you. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you, and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. Sounding good so far. Here we are, we're Israel. We're about to enter in. There's seven great nations there. You're supposed to enter into the land. And as you go, God's going to deliver you into them. You're going to destroy all of these people. Awesome. We're pretty good people, man. We got good warriors. We got God on our side. We, we got something to brag about. Then he continues. He says, you shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away, following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. So there's this warning. There's some application here. I can't tell you about how many young people I know they find a young girl or boy and they say, Oh, I really like this person. Are they a believer? Well, no, they're not a believer. But when I marry them, I'm going to basically evangelize them and then they'll come to faith. It almost never works that way. And God's warning is don't marry a non-believer because what's going to happen is they're going to draw you from your faith to nothing or to worship false gods. When I read this, I think of the great musical Fiddler on the Roof. What was his name? Octavia or Octave or whatever. I mean, how I want it, all I want is make my Tavia. Yes. May, may he smite me with riches. I love that song, you know, like... But as his daughters began to marry, they start breaking the traditions. And by the end, his baby daughter's moving outside, marrying outside the faith altogether. And he's like, can't have this. You're no longer my daughter. And you see the stubbornness of the Jewish people. It's a beautiful portrayal. And the warning is given here. God says, you will not intermarry. You need to stay faithful to me. If you cross pollinate, for lack of better terms, you're going to walk away from me. In verse 5, he continues, very not, this is not politically correct. He says, you know, as you march into town, I need you to do a couple more things. You've already decimated. Now we have some, some house to clean up. Verse 5, but thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim and burn 
their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people. Now, holy people simply means set apart. You are a holy people, a set apart people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you are more in numbers than any of the peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep my commandment and statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. Okay, with that, you can turn back to Romans and I'll continue to talk. As you're going back to Romans 11. So this promise is made. Israel will enter into the promised land. And as Israel enters into the promised land and history begins to unfold of the people Israel, as Romans 9, 6 talks about, within Israel, there was always a smaller segment, a remnant of people who followed God and lived according to faith, God's Israel. And so as they entered in, you would see history begin to unfold for Israel. Uh, eventually they would look around and they would, they would have judges and they wanted kings and they would, they would have seri- seasons of walking with the Lord, seasons of walking away from the Lord. Finally, after King Solomon passed away, his son took the throne. We see the nation is divided between north and south. The ten tribes of the north separated from the two tribes of the south. And basically, they walked away from the Lord. And 722 BC, the northern kingdom was taken captivity by Assyria from the northeast. They came down. They destroyed the northern kingdom. They took all of the peoples into captivity and into the diaspora. The Jewish people were scattered. Isaiah was the prophet of the south. He began to warn the southern kingdom to get right with God. They didn't listen. And about 150 years after Assyria took the northern kingdom, the Babylonians came in and basically decimated Jerusalem, decimated the southern kingdom, took all of them into captivity. This is the story of Daniel. When you start looking at the great city of Jerusalem, I think that the number is that there's been 36 wars in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's been destroyed 36 times. It's been reduced to ashes 17 times, rebuilt 18 times. This city has experienced much, much destruction. And as they're taken into captivity, you have the Assyrians and Babylonians. Eventually, the Medes and the, Perds, uh, the Medes and the Persians dominated them. And then, just to make sure I have it, then Alexander the Great came over and dominated the whole world, forced everybody to speak Greek. Following Alexander the Great, the Romans basically came over, took over the whole world. This was a setting that Paul was writing, the Romans had dominated this, the, the, the people. Fifteen years after the writing of Romans, Jerusalem would be destroyed, reduced to ashes. If we continue history out, we see that in 1939 to 1945, six million Jews were systematically murdered by Hitler. 
It wasn't until 1948, May 14th, 1948, that Israel was reestablished as a state. The reason I go into to modern history, the Holocaust, this is, this is a, a, a time that's sort of familiar. If you go to Israel, you will go to Yad Vashem, the, the Holocaust Museum. You, I don't even know if I can talk about it without getting choked up. To, to walk through there and to see the images, the horror that happened to the Jewish people. Then to go to the children, you walk in there and there's a million lights. And all they do, it takes days to get through all the names. But they just in three languages repeat the name of each child that was killed during the Holocaust. This is the Jewish people. This is our near history, but it's been going on forever. In Israel today, there's approximately, or in Jerusalem, I should say, there's about 5 million people surrounded by a million people that want them wiped off the face of the earth. And I want to be careful here. It's easy to go two ways when we start talking about the the situation in Israel. One extreme is anti-Semitism. We say, oh, the Jews blew everything. We don't, like God's done with them. On the other extreme, we say, no, let's worship the Jews. And let's kill all the, the Muslims. We hate them. Humans are really good at hating other humans. We got it wired. But the issue is, is God loves them all. And so we need to, we need to, we need to pray for the Muslims that God would grab hold of their heart. We need to pray for the Jews that hearts are hardened and stubborn. I'll never forget being in the Hezekiah's tunnel on my first trip there. And there was a guy that was blocking it because a, a Palestinian was shot the day before. And I was like, come on, can you just let me go wait in the water a little bit? He's like, I'm sorry, I can't. And we started talking with this guy. And this guy was a believer. He said, you know what? They're trying to solve the issue here with politics, but it's a spiritual issue. And it won't be resolved until the Messiah comes again and he takes care of business. And I was like, whoa, you're spitting knowledge at me. This is, this is so true. I forget what queen it was, but there was a queen that was skeptical of, of the Bible's truthfulness and reliability and she pulled one of her nobles up and she said how can we know that it's true his response to her was the jewish people the fact that they exist is proof of god's word the jewish people have for since their existence people have been trying to wipe them off the face of the earth and yet they still remain of all nations that israel that they're still as a people around is a powerful testimony of God's faithfulness. Is it Gunnar? Why are you bringing this all up? I want us to understand. The pain and the plight of the Jewish people. That Paul was writing. The Jews that he's writing. I believe that Romans chapter 11 verse 1. Until about verse 13. When he transitions in verse 13. He says but to the Gentiles are right. I think at that point. He's trying to get the attention of the Gentiles. But the first part, I think, who he's writing to is in Rome, this small group of Jewish believers who they've been through so much. They were taken into captivity, both the north and the south. They were scattered amongst the whole world. Where are they? They're in Rome. Rome is not Israel. How did they get there? Slavery. They were brought to Rome. Then they were kicked out of Rome. Now they're back in Rome. They're... They're looking at all of the promises of the Bible and go, is God just done with us? Maybe these Gentiles are right. These are the people that we were told to smash their idols and they were, they were dogs. 
because they rejected their God. It's not that they weren't welcome in to, to worship God. We'll, we'll look at a passage today where we see that those that believed that were outside, they were welcome into the Jewish faith. But now suddenly there's a whole bunch of Jews or Gentiles, excuse me, worshiping their God. And they're in the minority being cast aside. You think there was some discouragement? And so far in Paul's letter, chapters 9 and 10, he's making a great case for replacement theology that God has done with Israel. But then we get to chapter 11 and everything changes. And Paul, speaking to his brothers, asks the question, I say then, God has not rejected as people has. He, you, could, you could rephrase this to make it simpler to understand, to say something along the lines of like, um, has God rejected his people? Has he, has he rejected Israel? And notice how he responds with these four words, these strong four words that he's used in Romans 6, 1 throughout. May it never be. God forbid. He has not rejected his people. And as he says this, the first thing that he brings up is himself. He's like, I want to bring a piece of evidence to the witness stand. And his name is Saul of Tarsus. He says, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Sort of the same illusion that we read in Romans 8, 29. He says, listen, if God has rejected his people, I wouldn't be here as a man who's a believer in Christ. We look at Paul's history. What does he say about himself? He says, first, he identifies himself as the least of all the apostles. Then he identifies himself as the least of all Christians. Then he says, I'm the worst of all sinners. It's not that Paul was getting like on this track of uh, falling into sin. The more he lived, the more holy he recognized that God was. And it put himself into perspective. And he said, if God was to reject his people, I would be the first to be banished. As we read the New Testament, as the word is going out amongst Jewish people becoming believers in the Messiah... The first one recorded as being killed is Stephen. And who authorized that execution? It was Paul. Paul was there in authority as they laid their coats at his feet. He was on the war path of bringing these Jewish people who had trusted in Jesus as their Messiah to arrest, to beat them. And that's when Christ appeared. And Paul says, look it. If God was done with Israel, I wouldn't be here. But I'm here. And God is still reaching out to the remnant of us who believe. He continues. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Now, he's going to allude to the story. And Paul is going to bring up this story to show the history, to show that throughout history, God's chosen people have been reduced to almost nothing. And yet they survived. I have a dear friend of mine, Mike, who 25 years ago in high school, when we didn't have money to either pay for gas to go surf or the surf was no good, we would sit around and we'd play a very intellectual card game. The card game was called War. You know where you flip one card? Mindless game. Well, there was one game. I got down to my last card. I played it and I won and I came all the way back and I ended up beating him. It's been 25 years, he still says. Man, you remember that one card game? I can't believe you came back and beat me at war. 
Like, dude, it's been 25 years. Get over it. And I'm not, I'm not playing you again. That's where it ends. Like, I came back. And I get the impression that Paul's like sort of like, in today's story, it may seem bleak. But throughout history, God has proven himself to the Jewish people. Think about Abraham. We, we, we sang that song. I don't even remember what it was. But it was something, the word ram and then Abraham came up. And the whole issue of like, God had given all of his promises through his son Isaac. Everything. All of the promises. And he says, go kill him. Make an offering with him. Abraham lifts his hand up. Because I'm assuming he's left-handed. And uh, he's about to stab. And what happens? The ram comes out and he provides this offering. Doesn't matter if it's down to one. God is faithful. And it's the faithfulness of God that they need to cling to. Now he's going to bring up Elijah. He says, well, now myself. No, you guys remember that story, Elijah? Uh, my speculation is the Gentiles wouldn't have remembered the story. But every Jew would know the story of Elisha from 1 Kings chapter 18. If you would go there for me, I don't want to skip ahead to what Paul says. I want to go back to the story so we see in context what's happening. So in 1 Kings chapter 18, there's Elisha. There's Jezebel and Ahab. Not, not good people. They are Israelis. This is not uh, Israel versus other people. This is Israel against Israel. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, we read this story. It said, now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah. In the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the face of the earth. They were in a terrible, terrible drought. Verse 2, so Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For when Jezebel destroyed the, when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. Jezebel, as she was leading the northern kingdom, all of the prophets of God, she killed them all. And as she was killing them all, Obadiah pulled out a few of them. What does it say? A hundred there. And so he spared a hundred prophets of God and hid them from her. So we know that Obadiah is a good guy. Verse five. Then Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we will find grass and keep the horses and mules alive and not have to kill some of the cattle. So they divided the land between them to survey it. Ahab went on his way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. Now as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he recognized him, and he fell on his face. Is this you, Elijah, my master? He said to him, it is I. Go and say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. He said, what sin have I committed that you are going, that you are giving your servants in the hand of Ahab to put me to death? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent to search for you. When he, and when they said he is not here, he made the kingdom a nation to swear they could not find you. So he basically sets it up. Go find King Ahab. You need to go tell him Elijah's here. He's terrified. He says, don't worry about it. God's going to take care of it. We skip down to verse 17 and we read, then Ahab saw Elijah. Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? He said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have. 
because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed Baals. Now send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So he's basically saying, you go get all these false prophets. I want you to meet me at Mount Carmel. If you were looking at Israel, um, if you're following the coastline up, you'll see a big, like kind of like a hook that turns into a bay. At that hook, that's pretty much where Mount Carmel is, a huge mountain. You can overlook the valley. He says, we're going to gather there. You get 950 of your false prophets. I'm going to show up. We're going to have a little like who really has God on our side off. Okay. Verse 20. So Ahab sent a message amongst the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the prophets and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer a word. And so he, he basically said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get an offering. Get all of your wood together. Get it nice and seasoned so it's really easy to catch on fire. We're in a drought. No problem. I'm going to get my wood set up. You get to go first. So call on your God and see if he'll rain down fire from heaven. And while they're doing this, nothing's happening. And in verse 27, it's one of the best smack talkings in the Bible. I'd love it. Can I get an amen? You know, it's like a fun one. Look at verse 27. It came about at noon. So I imagine they're like doing all of their prayers like, oh, Lord, give us fire from heaven. Do all of this stuff. Elijah's like trimming his fingernails going, you it's noon, guys. It's been hours. Uh, then, then Elisha mocked them. said, call out with a loud voice. For he is a God. Either he's occupied, meaning that he's going to the bathroom. Maybe your God's just going potty right now. And he's busy. When he's done going potty, maybe then he'll come out and help you. Uh, or gone aside or is on a journey. Or maybe he's asleep and you just need to wake him up. And needs to be awakened. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out of them. And this goes on and on and on. Now Elijah says, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to get my altar ready to go. He's got all of his wood. He, he digs a, a sort of a, a ravine around it. And when you want to start a fire when you're camping, what do you do? Or you're in the desert where it's safe, of course. Children don't try this at home. Get your wood, you get your five-gallon thing of gasoline and you start dousing it with, with gasoline you stand really far back and you start the match with your tooth and you throw it on the fire. It's awesome. So this is exactly what Elijah did, except instead of gas, he uses water. And he douses water all over it to where there's like puddles of waters all around. It's like a bunch of wood floating in a swimming pool. This stuff won't catch on fire. All of a sudden, he calls out from heaven, basically calls to God. Then he basically has all of them killed. And... Jezebel's not happy. We fast forward to verse chapter 19. Verse 1 of chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So bold Elijah, who just called all of them, killed all of these 950 prophets. What does he do? Stand up and fight? No, he runs 80 miles to the south to Beersheba in the desolate desert of, and when you hear it's desert, yeah, it's not wilderness. Think when you hear wilderness, think desert. 
nothing. Down by the Dead Sea, he runs all the way down there, 80 miles as the crow flies. Verse 30, as he was afraid and arose and ran for his life, that's Elijah, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I'm not better than my father's. He has his greatest spiritual uh, event. He stands for the Lord. He challenges the false prophets. God responds. God is moving. Following this comes his greatest depression, greatest discouragement. I think we as Christians do a disservice to new believers. when We say, oh, trust in Jesus and all your problems are going to go away. Then you trust in Jesus and you have some of your most trying circumstances. Your family disowns you. You suddenly, the way you live, it disconnects you from your friends. Discouragement comes. Often when God does the greatest thing, suddenly discouragement comes. Christians get discouraged. Christians get depressed. And here Elisha is, he's like, woe is me. I'm just ready to die. And I think he wrote the first country song during this passage here. That's my joke. I don't know. So he's there pleading for his life. And in verse 5, he lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head bread caked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate, drank, and he lay down again. Sometimes when you're discouraged, all you need is a little bit of food, a good nap, some rest. And that'll remove the problems. Then we see the angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Christ showing up on scene with Elijah. Or maybe the pre-incarnate Christ was the first one. I'm sorry. He came again a second time and he touched him and said, arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. So he rose and he ate and drank and he went in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb. So he's making his way north up to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, this is kind of the section that we're getting to that Paul quotes from. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain. I want you to skip down to midway through verse 13. At the very end of it, the scene almost repeats itself word for word. God comes to Elijah again. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord. The record's not skipping. This happens again. I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Turn back to Romans 11, please. So this is the story. Elijah does great things for God. Then he gets discouraged. He runs. He thinks he's all alone. Great discouragement comes. Discouragement so great that he wants to take his own life or have God take his own life. Now, why would Paul quote this story? It gives great insight to the mind of the Jewish believers. We know from, from the account of the New Testament 
that when they came to faith in the Messiah, their families disowned them. Their, their, their fellow community peepers, people kicked them out, tried to kill them. They lost everything in following after the Messiah. I told you to go to Romans. Hold your spot there. But in, in John chapter 1, you don't have to go to John chapter 1, but you can go to Acts chapter 13. In John chapter 1 is the apostle John, who's the oldest and only living apostle at the time of his writing. When he starts out his gospel about the Messiah coming, that the word became flesh. You come to verse 11. And in verse 11, it says that he came to his own. And the second part and his, uh, this is my, okay, let me find it. He came to his own and those were who were his own did not receive him. Jesus is Jewish. Jewish. He's, he came of the Jews. He is the Messiah that was promised to the Jewish people. We're told that as he entered into earth through the Jewish line, he came to his people and his people rejected him. In Acts 13, I happened to be teaching this Wednesday night for Acts. Rick said, hey, can you, can you cover the study this week? I'm like, sure. So I'm trying to like kind of get, a, get caught up. Hey, what's the story in Acts? I start reading it and it strikes me that it fits so well with, with Paul's heart. Now, this story in Acts chapter 13, verse 26, this is Paul's first missionary journey. He'd gone out and as he did in every stop, the first people he addressed are the Jewish people and Gentiles who had converted to Judaism that had followed after their God. And in verse six, this is how he starts his sermon. He says, brethren, those are Jews, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God. Those are Gentiles who'd been brought in. Gentiles were allowed to come into the Jewish faith. He said to us, the message of this salvation has been sent. This is beautiful. When you look at Jerusalem and you see this city that's the center of the world. To think that that's where God paid for salvation for us. That's where Christ was crucified. That's where our salvation was paid for. And he says, This message of the salvation has been sent. So it came, it was entrusted to us. We're to send it out. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. Don't let this one pass. He said, there are those in Jerusalem who live there. There are the teachers, the priests and the leaders who run the temple which doesn't exist there today in every synagogue as they read the prophets, all of the prophets telling about the Messiah. They read every single day, every single Saturday, they're preaching about the Messiah. Then the Messiah comes and what happens? They don't recognize him. Recognizing him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath fulfilled these. It wasn't an accident that Jesus was put to death. It was actually prophecy being fulfilled. They fulfilled these by condemning him. And although they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they carried out all that was written according to him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. And that's the story. Now, uh, there's one of the best buts in the Bible. It doesn't stop there, but God raised him from the dead, but we don't have time to go there. I mean, we'll, we go there every week, but in this Acts... So going back to Romans chapter 11, Paul understood 
the Jewish remnant in Rome and those that came to trust in Jesus as their Messiah. They faced persecution from all sides. They had the Gentile believers telling them that all of the promises given to Israel were done. That the church had assumed all of those blessings. To their Jewish families who didn't believe, they were kicked out of their families, their, their, their customs, their places of employment that would go on for over the years. And Paul, after he brings himself, he brings Elijah up. Talk about one of the most depressing stories of the whole Old Testament. Here's a guy that's on the verge of suicide because he's so depressed. And Paul says, this is a great story to kind of talk about how we're feeling right now. You guys know what the passage says about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel. The whole story was amongst Israelis. Lord, they've killed your prophets, verse 3 of Romans 11. And they've torn down your altars. And I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. Paul then says, what is the divine response to him? God responds, I have kept myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And if we were to continue the story in 1 Kings chapter 19, we would see at that point, God says, listen, Elijah, you think you're all alone. You're not alone. There are other believers out there. I have 7,000. Following that, we see that God then brings Elijah to kind of encourage him and to walk with him. We need to, to, to recognize that the people who sit next to us might be going through a very difficult time. I have a friend that tells a story of a dear friend of mine years ago. I forgot about this during the last service, but it just came to me. He said, yeah, I went to church. It's a big mega church. And my plan was to go to church and then I was going to commit suicide following the service. And he sat down and he said, this middle-aged lady just looked at me and gave me a hug and said, how are you doing? You know, God loves you. And it's like, the guy's doing great and he's walking, like he's, he's, it's just overwhelming. We just think everybody's okay or you're so despondent about something that you think you're all alone. And God says, you're not all alone. And we as a church need to be aware of each other and love on each other and help each other when we're down. You know, when I went to Mongolia, I started feeling like a failure. I, I got there. I'm like, oh, I made this journey. And I recognized about the fourth day that I was driving around with Josh, just drinking coffee and making fun of Mongolian culture. And I, was, I remember driving in the car, eating nasty food, kind of making fun of the people. Then I looked at Josh and I'm like, I'm sorry, dude. I'm like a horrible pastor. I'm supposed to be here like encouraging you. And all I'm doing is making fun of this God forsaken place that you live like God is gone. Like it's miserable here. There's no good food. He's laughing and saying, no, like it's cool, brother. You know, I'm like, I need to try to be more intentional about encouraging you. But I just, it's just a desolate, brutal place. And then that night, Heidi, not knowing about it, we're sitting around dinner and Josh had like gone to go put the kids to bed or something. And she looked at me and Richard with tears in her eyes. And she said, Gunnar, I can't tell you how thankful I am for you guys coming because I haven't heard my husband laugh in over three years. This is the first time I've heard him laugh and enjoy life. And, it, and, and sometimes encouraging people doesn't look like you think it should look, just spending time. That's why, uh, like, not only do we want to care for people here, but our missionaries that are serving, if you can feel isolated here, imagine going to a place where they don't have in and out and, and, you know, other stuff. 
I mean, there's a whole bunch of people that speak your language. But to have somebody to go and to spend time and to laugh and to encourage and to say, you know what? You're not alone. There's a whole church, huge church in Valley Baptist Church. And we love you. And we're here with you to encourage you. We need this. Okay, I'm out of time. So I'm just going to end. I, uh, the first service, I said I didn't know where I was going to get to. So I didn't make a middle note. Where did we get to? Despondency. So we'll pick up next week. I can do this. Respecting you guys' time. It's lunch. Uh, Father, I do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, um, Lord, I, we open the paper, we watch the news. You can't go through the paper, you can't watch a news without hearing about Israel every day. To see Egypt in the midst of a civil war, to see Syria going through a horrible war, to see Iran going through all kinds of things. Lord, the situation over there is overwhelming. In the midst of it is Israel. Father, we pray for that nation. We pray for them as a people, Lord. Not, we know that you have promised that people a great deal of things. And so, Lord, I pray, Father, that you... Um, Lord, you would open the eyes of their heart, Lord, that they would come to see that Christ is indeed the Messiah. Lord, they're hardened. And so, Lord, we pray for those Christians that go on tours there and interact with the Jewish people, Lord, that, Lord, is that Paul writes, the part I'm cutting off, Lord, that that they would see a joy coming through these believers, Lord, that is from their Messiah. Lord, that you would spark a jealousy. We pray for those ministries that serve in Israel, reaching Israelis, Lord, that you would encourage them, Lord. We pray that you would just reveal yourself to them, Lord. Father, we pray for the surrounding countries, Lord, the the Muslim world, Lord, that is so darkened to your truth. Lord, we pray for those, Lord, I know that are serving in those countries that can't share what they're doing, that fear their lives daily. Lord, we pray that you would use them to communicate the gospel, that the Muslims would see that their God is a Jewish God and their Messiah is a Jewish Messiah and that you would break down the hatred that so easily comes from the human heart Lord, I pray for us as a church, Lord. We, uh, I look at this passage and I'm encouraged, Lord, by the, uh, Lord, that we're not alone, that we have you. And so, Lord, as we face our own discouragements, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us. Father, for those of us that are doing okay, Lord, I pray that you would help us to have your eyes, to, to give a loving touch, a loving handshake, a, a warm hug, to encourage somebody that may be going through something that we don't even know about. Father, we thank you that we can trust you, that our hope is in you, that you are faithful. We love you, Lord. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.